right, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Now, there's two things of notable consideration as we begin reading Daniel chapter 2. The first is that Daniel uses a literary technique known as a chiastic structure. Now, what, is, what in the world does that mean? Uh, chi or chi, C-H-I, is uh, the Greek letter for X. And literally what you have in this narrative is a, a correlation of chapters. Uh, on the screen, you'll see this is the chiastic structure from Daniel chapter 2 all the way through Daniel chapter 7. And here's what that means. It means a chiastic structure basically means on the, on the outside of the X, on the, on the tips of the X, the A is going to correspond with the second A. In other words, chapter 2 and chapter 7 are going to be related to each other. So if we are going to have a really good understanding of what's happening in chapter 2, we should also read chapter 7. At the same time, the chiastic structure moves inward, and chapter 3 then is going to correspond with chapter 6. And then chapter 4 corresponds with chapter 5. So you see how it's done. It's like it's, you're creating this X. It crosses this way, and then it comes back out. And that's why it's called a chiastic structure. Now, we see these in all sorts of different ways throughout Scripture. The Hebrew people, uh, as they were writing Scripture, sometimes the author would, would use this pattern, this technique of writing. He would use it in a single verse, just in one verse where the first word corresponds with the last word, and then the second word corresponds with the second to the last word, and, and so forth. Sometimes they can be as many as, as a dozen or more uh, lines that correspond with the next dozen. So it's incredible to see how they do this structure. Now, how, do we, how, did, this, how did someone discover this? How is it that you see these chiastic structures? Well, that leads us to the second thing. Daniel did us a favor when he was writing the book of Daniel, and specifically Daniel chapter, chapters 2 through 7, because he did something unique that is not seen really, uh, but maybe in one other author and a couple of other places in the Old Testament where it's seen. Daniel switched languages. Here's what, literally, so here's what happens. He's writing chapter 1 in Hebrew, in the, the, the language of the Jewish people, the, the Hebrew language. And then when he gets to chapter 2, he starts off in Hebrew, and then he shifts to Aramaic. So in chapter 2, he shifts language, and then he continues to use the Aramaic language until when? Chapter 7. Okay, so this chiastic structure that we see is all in Aramaic. Uh, he speaks Hebrew, uh, and that would be his, his native language, but he also speaks Aramaic. Why would he speak Aramaic? That was the common language of the people in Babylon. Okay, so why exactly would he switch? Why did he use Aramaic? Uh, scholars are really uncertain on this. Scholars aren't really sure why did Daniel just all of a sudden go from writing in Hebrew to writing in Aramaic? 
regardless of, regardless of what his intentions were, one, it points us to the chiastic structure. So perhaps one of the reasons that he wrote that way is to make sure that we didn't miss this, this structure. Hey, if you, while you're reading chapter 2, I want you to see it's parallel in chapter 7. When you're reading chapter 3, see it's parallel in chapter 6. And, and then it gives, it, it actually, chapter 7 helps us interpret chapter 2 in an immense way as well. But I think that there might be another reason. And even though it's not explicit, and even though it's not for certain, I think that Daniel wanted these narratives, this historical um, rendering of the events that took place, I think he wanted them to be able to be read in the common language of people, in the Gentile community, not just among the nation of Israel. But I think he wanted the people in Gentile nations to be able to read this and to understand that the one true living God was not just concerned with the nation of Israel, but actually cared for the people of Gentile nations. So I think that there is a missional aspect to Daniel's writing of chapters 2 through 7 when he writes it in Aramaic. So it's a reasonable uh, possibility uh, that it was certainly missional in its emphasis. So in Daniel chapter 1, actually verse 17, we're told that Daniel was blessed by God with the ability to understand dreams and visions. And as we're going to see today, that blessing is going to be uh, maybe a bigger blessing than he recognized. Uh, it's going to be something that is not only going to save Daniel's life, but it's going to save the lives, the lives of, of many others. Not just Daniel, not just the, his three friends, but actually it's going to save the lives of, of many people. So let's do this. Let me give you key point number one. And then we'll work, work through Daniel chapter 2, and we'll unpack it as we go. Key point number one, then, is this. In a hostile culture, non-believers may make threats to get their way. In a hostile culture, non-believers may make threats to get their way. Now, what do I mean by hostile culture? What I'm referring to here is that the... Uh, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, had just been taken captive. And they were taken away from their homeland and moved into a culture that was hostile to anything of their faith, anything that they had done uh, previously. They wanted to strip them of that. And as we, as we read through chapter 1, we discovered that they wanted to, they didn't just want to strip them of their, of their background or uh, of their, their beliefs, they wanted them to, to embrace the Babylonian culture. So they would strip them of their, of their Hebrew names, give them Babylonian names. They would strip them of their beliefs and tell them, no, you have to, you have to worship our gods. You can't worship Yahweh anymore. You have to worship Marduk. You can't do this anymore. You have to do it this way. And they did this to, to all of these young men over the period of about three years, uh, really to indoctrinate them and bring them into the Babylonian culture. So it was a hostile culture where they were opposed to the things of God, and specifically the Hebrew people, 
and what they would like to bring into the culture. They were not going to have it. And as a result, that culture, as we will see, will make threats uh, to get their way. So let's pick up verse 1. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I've had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. In other words, he wants to know its meaning. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made as ash heap. Do you hear? I mean, this is, you talk about a threat. You know, we're, we're going to cut you up. We're going to burn down your house and your family in it, okay? And, and the request is not just that you interpret the dream. You have to tell me what I dreamed. So this is, this is incredible what he's asking. So you know, if, if this doesn't happen, your house will be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered and said again, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you, that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, can you imagine getting this news? You know, you're Daniel, you're, you know, you're his friends as well, and you're like, uh, what? You know, I, I wasn't even present, I'd, and now they're going to kill me. They didn't even give me an opportunity and, uh, to defend myself, and now they're, going to, uh, now they're going to execute. Listen to that. They're going to kill all of them. Now, he's not even waiting. He should just kill all the magicians, the astrologers, all of them. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever awakened from a dream that was so disturbing, that the content was just so disturbing 
that you couldn't stop thinking about it and you, and you couldn't get back to sleep. King Nebuchadnezzar couldn't sleep because his dream troubled him greatly. The interesting thing is it troubled him, but he didn't even know what it meant. He didn't know what it meant. But he knew whatever it means, it wasn't good. It, it was troubling. It was challenging. It was, uh, it was not going to be good news. So he didn't know the meaning of the, of the dream. But he knew, he knew it was troubling. You know, as a result, when he, when he tried to get the answers that he wanted, uh, his temper escalated rather quickly. I mean, he, he, you talk about someone with a short fuse. I mean, this is someone who Nebuchadnezzar went from, all right, I need you to tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation. They're like, I don't think we can do that. And he's like, no, you don't understand. If you don't, I'm going to kill you and your family. We're going to burn your houses down. And then it escalates to, I'm, I, we're going to do that to all of you. Not just, not just, you know, one or two of you, every single one of you, if someone can't step forward. But it's important to understand that threats and fits of anger, such as displayed by King Nebuchadnezzar, are not the behavior expected of God's people. Hear me on this, because Nebuchadnezzar was a harsh king. He was ruthless toward his enemies, and he imposed harsh punishment to those who didn't follow his edicts. And we're going to see that as it plays out. I mean, it's no surprise, right? We're, we know where this is going. We know that there's going to be a furnace in which, which three people are going to be thrown into this furnace. That's the type of ruler he is. We know that Daniel is going to be thrown into a, a lion's den to be devoured in, a, in, in anticipation of being devoured by a lion. We know that that's the type of, of person that we're dealing with. That's the type of leadership that the Babylonians are accustomed to. However, the lesson for us as Christians is not merely don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be harsh. Don't be ruthless. It all, that almost goes without saying, right? I mean, that, if that were the key point, it would be like, okay, yeah, don't, don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. That's like saying don't be like Satan. Okay, yeah, oh, I, I get it, bad idea. But I think that there's more going on here. More than just don't be harsh, don't be ruthless. The lesson for us is not just don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. The lesson for us is more about our response when others are harsh and ruthless and even threaten our own well-being. That's the lesson for us. How do we respond when someone is harsh toward us? How do we respond when someone threatens our family? How do we respond when, when threats are made and when harsh uh, things are, are being spouted at us and they're just absolutely ruthless? I don't want us to underestimate the lengths that Satan will go through to see to it that you are defeated. Think of it this way. Satan was willing to see to it that all of the false prophets 
of Babylon. Every sorcerer, every magician, all of them would be destroyed if it would stop the influence of these four faithful servants of the Lord. Satan will stop at nothing to destroy and to stop just these four young men. Even if it means wiping out an entire people group, he would do it. So I don't want us to miss that. The lesson for us is not to be, just, don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. The lesson is when a Nebuchadnezzar comes into our life, what is our response to that? How do we respond to that? Because when, when we respond in like manner, we've missed it. So maybe it's, it's not, don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe it's more of, let's look at see what Daniel did. The world is already hostile toward God. We know this. Jesus actually told us this, and he, he made it very clear, John chapter 15. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I mean, Jesus made it abundantly clear that, that because we are not of this world and because we follow Christ, the world is already hostile against us. And then the very next chapter, John 16, Jesus said these words. He said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So do you hear what the words that Jesus is using here? He's telling us right up front, listen, you're in a hostile culture. You're not only in a hostile culture, you're in a hostile world. But in me, listen to these words, you have peace, you can have good cheer, and you can overcome the world. So in Christ, there is incredible hope. There is great hope in Christ. 